Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We're now in the middle of this 15th chapter. And as you open the scriptures this morning, we find another of these intriguing stories in the life of Jesus. I hope that I don't have to remind you that Christianity is Christ. Christianity is the knowledge of Christ, which the Apostle Paul referred to as a knowledge that is excellent and is worth having more than any other knowledge in the world. The knowledge of Christ is not just learning these stories about Jesus. It's not just a historical pursuit of him, even though the historical Jesus is fundamental to your knowing him better. The knowledge that Paul talks about, though, is a knowledge that comes by faith. And faith begins with the historical record, especially the understanding of who Christ claimed to be and what he did on the cross. And then it moves into the agreement that the facts that the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ are true and that the death of Jesus Christ was required for the forgiveness of our sins. And then it finishes with trust and confidence in Christ, personal commitment to him as the Lord and Savior. And that is what we call saving faith. Now, there are many people that get to the first part. They know the historical record about Jesus. Some will go further to the second part, and that is they agree that what the Bible says about Jesus is true and that he's the one that we need to go to to seek forgiveness But they never take the final third step of saving faith, and that is to give everything they are, to give up everything they are, to get everything that he is. And that means to commit to him knowing that he's the only one that can help us. Now, in this passage today, this story in Jesus' life is about a woman who had all three of those parts in her faith. And hers was an unexpected and surprising faith to Jesus. He found faith in an unexpected place. And it caused Jesus to say that this woman had great faith. Now, Jesus is not known for superfluous comments. He always goes straight to the point. And so when he says that someone's faith is great, then that's a faith that we need to sit up and take notice of. Now, we've been through 14 and a half chapters in Matthew. We're now two-thirds of the way through Jesus' earthly ministry. And he has encountered thousands of people. Most of them were people from Israel, God's chosen nation. And yet, this is only the second time that we find in the book of Matthew, after all the people that Jesus had talked to, the many thousands that he had healed and spoken to and taught, this is only the second time in the entire book where Jesus referred to someone's faith as being great. He talked about little faith, and in fact, he applied that to his own 12 chosen apostles. He said, oh, ye of little faith. And there's only one other time in the book of Matthew, and that's in Matthew chapter 8, that Jesus said that a person's faith was great, and that happened to be a Gentile centurion And Jesus said that man was a man who had great faith. And it was surprising to us as we studied that 8th chapter of Matthew to find that Jesus would say that about a Gentile. But now we find something here that I think is even more surprising because not only is he talking about a Gentile, but he's speaking of a Gentile woman. And if you are familiar with how they looked at women in those days, to say that a woman's faith was great was really something when Jesus said this. Now, if you'll look in Matthew chapter 15, verse number 21, and I'd like you to stand with me one more time as we read God's word. 
Matthew chapter 15, verse number 21, and we'll read down to verse number 28. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. We ask you, Lord, that you'd open our hearts to the truth of this passage and help us to learn today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. From beginning to end, this is a story that's filled with surprises. And before we get into the heart of this passage, we need to note how that Matthew was very careful to record a gospel and a kingdom of Christ that is far-reaching over the entire world. Jesus was the promised Messiah to the Jews, and Matthew has been noted as being the most Jewish in character of all of the four gospels that we have in the scriptures. And yet it's Matthew who took care to record in the birth of Jesus, that there were Gentile wise men that came to visit Jesus. And this was when his own people cared not at all that he'd even been born, and even born just a stone's throw, you might say, away from their temple. None of the other writers of Scripture record this story either. And yet, it's Matthew, the most Jewish of all of the Gospels, that relishes in the opportunity to tell how that Jesus the King reached out to the worst of Gentiles. In this case, he reached out to one who was among the established traditional enemies of the Jews, and he records her faith as being great. And he's not talking about the self-righteous Jewish leaders and those that he had witnessed to so many times in the country of Israel, not those self-righteous Jewish leaders that thought that they were undefiled, but he talks about a woman here, an unrighteous, defiled Gentile. We study the Bible verse by verse here at Berean, and it's good for us to note these kinds of connections in Scripture because there are reasons why the stories are recorded in a particular order. The beginning of this chapter is about the scribes and the Pharisees who thought that they were clean, and yet their hearts were defiled, And then we have this story about a woman who was considered unclean by them, and yet she had a heart that was purified by faith. The beginning of the chapter is Jesus as he ministers in Jewish territory, where he was overwhelmingly rejected by his own people, people that had no faith. And then we come to this story, and we see Jesus in Gentile territory, where he finds a woman who has great faith, a reception of a person that he called great faith. Now, these stories are not placed in 
the scriptures by accident, but they emphasize the difference in people that try to make heaven on their own efforts as opposed to those who have committed everything that they have to Jesus Christ because they have found that their own efforts were useless to achieve what they want. And so they have found that their dependence upon anything that they do is completely useless. Now this is saving faith, and this is commended by Jesus as the only faith that really works. Now let's take some notice of some of the surprising details that we find in this story today. First, we'll talk about the desperation that caused this woman's faith. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus left Galilee, which is a part of what we call the Holy Land, and he went into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which we might call some of the most unholy lands that there were. This is the area that's north of Israel that today is known as Lebanon and Syria. And in New Testament times, this particular place was inhabited by descendants of the Phoenicians. Tyre and Sidon were two coastal cities. They were extremely vile. They were on the coast of the Mediterranean. Even though Jesus did not go all the way to the coast, yet this was the type of people, the ones that lived in those two cities, that characterized the people that were in this area. Now, you see in your King James Version where it talks about the coast of the country, that doesn't necessarily mean the sea coast, but it means that Jesus went beyond the borders of Israel and he went into this particular region of Tyre and Sidon. And there he met this Canaanite woman, a woman who was one of the traditional, uh, from the traditional enemies of the Jews. Now, part of the problem that we find here in her desperation is the descent of this woman. The Phoenicians were descended from the Canaanites that lived in the land at the time that God told Joshua to drive out all the inhabitants of that land because this particular place was the promised land. The Canaanites were a people that had been cursed by God. God told Joshua to drive them all out. And in fact, if you know Old Testament history, you know that Joshua was told to destroy all of these people. God said, kill all of them. And this woman is only here because of that incomplete obedience that the Israelites gave to God's command. Now that seems to be just a horrible thing to think that God would do something like this. And we, we would ask, why did God tell Joshua to kill all these people? Well, you, you only have to look at their religious practices and how they sacrificed their own children to idols in a wicked, bloodthirsty ritual. These were inhuman people. They were vile. They were sexually perverted. And when Israel drove some of them out but failed to drive all of them out, God said that what will happen to you is you're going to fall prey to their false practices. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. And this is one of the reasons that we find Israel at this particular juncture in history so far away from God. Now, this was a woman that was very desperate because she was part of that doomed race. She was living in a perverted religion. She was worshiping false gods. She was among the most ungodly of sorts. And so looking at this in the human perspective, she had absolutely no right to approach Jesus and ask him for anything. Now, secondly, we note her desperation because of the darkness of demons. It says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. 
My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. So hers was a great need. Her daughter was demon-possessed. And here the scripture says that she was grievously vexed. And that means that she had a type of possession that was far beyond her ability to bear. And this wasn't her imagination. I know some people doubt the reality of demon possession, but this wasn't a superstition that this woman or daughter had. This was real. And this is what happens when the world is covered under the thick darkness and this blanket of sin that Satan has put here. In the New Testament times, demon possession was rampant, and that's because there was so little light in the world At this time of Israel's history, they were farther away from God than they'd ever been before. They were 400 years without a prophet in Israel. They still had the commandments. They still claimed that they were God's people. But they had grossly perverted God's commandments and instead they had put in their place the traditions of men. And that's what we learned in the first part of the 15th chapter, how that they overlooked God's commandments and placed instead their own traditions. So Israel was not a light to the Gentile nations. In fact, they weren't even a light to their own people. They were far away from God. Now, where God works, Satan cannot work. But whenever people plunge into the deep abyss of sin, we expect that when they come up out of that pit, that they bring demons with them. And this is what happened to these Gentile people. They were suffering under these wicked demons that afflicted these people. And this woman had a daughter who was possessed by a demon. And there was no help for her in her religion. She worshipped a false god. And really, that's what caused the demon possession in the first place. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul talked about heathen idols. And he said, behind every idol is a demon. That demons are the ones who cause people to worship such things, and their master is Satan himself. So she had no help there. She was going to the wrong place. But you notice this very important point, that when she cried out to Jesus, she said to him, have mercy on me. She loved her daughter so much that the pain that her daughter experienced was her pain. And so she cried out to him, have mercy on me. Her daughter's suffering was her suffering. So she identified with that. And she could help her daughter in many different ways, but one thing she could not do, she could not help her to get rid of this demon possession. She was powerless, and her gods were powerless, and so she went to the only one who could help. Now, I know that there may be some of you that have children that have broken your heart, When you've raised a child in church, and as they get older, they depart from the church, they depart from the faith, that's very painful to parents. And when your children are old enough to have received Christ as Savior, and they haven't expressed that faith in him, I know how that can be for a parent who's just broken up inside, because those of us are Christians know what happens after this life. A good question for you is to ask, are you like this woman? And that is, do you plead with God over it? Are you concerned enough as a parent about your child that you are willing to pour out your heart to God over that child? You know that you can't save them, and you know that your salvation doesn't count for them, but you can pray and you can ask God to deliver them. 
And I would say that there are, are many children that have left the faith, many children that are not in church today because they're Christian parents that refuse to get down on their knees and put their faces in the dirt and beg God for mercy. This was the type of activity on the part of this woman. She was willing to beg for her children. Next, we note the difficulties that confronted her faith. I've mentioned that she was descended from a doomed race, and we see also that the demons were too powerful for her gods to overcome, and those were expected difficulties. Of course, that's, that's a hard thing to overcome, and that adds to the difficulty that she experienced. But what we don't expect is to see what happens next. Now, we do very clearly understand why she needed Jesus. She has no God that can help her. She has no ability to help her daughter herself, no power against demons. So we know why she needs Jesus, but we're very surprised about what happens here next because she cried out for Jesus and she wanted mercy. And in verse number 23, we see the totally unexpected where it says, but he answered her not a word. What's the difficulty? The difficulty here is the deafening silence that she received from Jesus. When did he ever do this? When was he not willing to answer someone who poured out his heart to God and begged for his attention? When do we see people crying out after him and then Jesus just walks on paying no attention as if that person is invisible to him? That's not the Jesus that we've seen in previous 14 chapters in Matthew. In all of that time, I cannot find one person that Jesus ignored who came to him with an honest plea. Now, we need to pay attention here because silence is not refusal. And what he didn't say is as important as what he did say. He didn't say no. And that's important for you to remember in your trials Silence from God or no answer from God does not necessarily mean no. And silence from God might mean wait a while. Silence may mean the timing is not right. Silence might mean I still have more lessons for you to learn. And so it's very important for us to understand that Jesus has reasons for his delays. He has more to teach. He has faith to build. And he keeps building that faith until it's very clear that it's genuine and total commitment is evident. So she's met by this deafening silence from Jesus. That's a great difficulty. But I'll notice the second one, and that's the disturbed disciples. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Now, there is that old stock answer of Jesus' disciples. They said, send her away. When the multitude was hungry and they came to Jesus for food, the disciples said, send them away. Mahatma Gandhi, who was not a Christian, reportedly said to a Methodist pastor, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. I know it's not politically correct for me to say this, but according to the Bible, Gandhi was a heathen. Now, sometimes the Apostle Paul quoted heathens approvingly when they said something that was right. And God was even able to put words into the high priest Caiaphas' mouth, who was a very wicked man, and at least on one occasion he prophesied right. Now, how discouraging was it for this woman to overhear these words? Christ's companions... His disciples wanted to get rid of her. 
And this is because they were none too eager to help Gentile heathens. Now, Gandhi was right about this. The conduct of many Christians would never lead people to the foot of the cross. While people may see Christ favorably and they have the historical aspects of faith, they never go all the way to commitment because they've seen the hypocrisy of Christians. So why do they want to trade one hypocrisy for another? If it appears that Christ has done nothing for you, then why would they want him? And so people are willing to stand at arm's length to Christ and they're willing to admire our Christ because after all, he is a model. He helps people. He he was a champion of those that are downcast and distraught. But apparently by the actions of many Christians, he never really helped them with the problem of sin. And so we'd have to ask, Do your actions promote Christ and do you have compassion for the lost as he had compassion? Sometimes we act as if we're put off by the lost and as Christians we act towards people that come to church in a different way because they're a little bit different to us. They don't fit our model. They don't look like us. We have no patience for them. If they're not fixed before they come in, then we don't have anything to do with them. So we can say that, yes, Christ is okay, but Christians, not so much. Well, Jesus' silence was difficult and the disturbed disciples were difficult, but that only makes her faith more commendable because she fought through all of these obstacles to get her hearing from Jesus. But there's another difficulty that we find here, and that's the discouraging comparison. She begged Jesus for mercy But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now again, that is a surprising answer from Jesus and that's just the first part of his answer. Jesus' ministry was to the Jews. He was their Messiah. And she approached him crying out to him, O Lord, thou son of David. And she didn't really have any right to approach him on that basis. And that's because son of David is a reference to him as the king of Israel. That's a messianic play. And Jesus accepted that when it was spoken by Jews. But this is a Gentile from a cursed race. And what did Paul say about the Gentiles in, in, in the, at Ephesus? He said in Ephesians chapter 2, he said, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, that is by the Jews, by that which is called, or Gentiles rather, by that which is called the circumcision or Jews in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise without hope, and without God in the world. Now this woman approached Jesus before the cross. She had no right to approach him on the basis of a covenant relationship. And so it's not hers to ask for mercy from the son of David. Jesus knew what was in her heart, but he couldn't answer this, this plea of hers in an official capacity. Now in just a moment, we're going to see a different approach. But for now, this was extremely discouraging for her to hear, I am not sent, but to the lost people who are in Israel. And so does that mean that she's without hope? Does that mean that the world is without hope? Well, there's a good reason why that Jesus didn't go to the Gentiles at first or immediately upon the rejection of the Jews. And that's because that if he had done that, he would have been immediately rejected by them and never given any type of a hearing. 
So Gentiles never became the focus of Jesus' ministry. I don't know how long this pause was between verse 24 and 25, and I don't know how far off she was from Jesus, but she must have thought that he was putting her off and rebuffed her first attempt. So we notice what she does next. Then came she, in verse 25, then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. So now she broadens the appeal to him. He's Lord of all, not just the Lord of the Jews, So now she drops the plea, the son of David, and I take that to mean that she knew her place. That if she was going to receive anything from Jesus, total commitment, total dependence, and total humility must be apparent. And do you see how Jesus moved her faith along? Son of David, if she says that, that could be just an admission that he's a descendant of another great king, the descendant of David, but he has only the pedigree and nothing else. But when she worshipped him and called him Lord, her faith was strengthened and that commitment to him became more evident. But we still have a problem, don't we? She worshipped him and then he made what appears to be a horrible comparison. She said, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not meat or it's not fit to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Isn't that cruel? Do you see how the difficulty appears to increase as it looks like Jesus is trying to break her spirit and destroy her hopes of any help? Totally surprising what Jesus said. And this is why we study the text to find out why that Jesus answered in this way. James Smith wrote, Jesus had said, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. But difficulties have often to be faced and surmounted in the coming. So here is the difficulty. See, the hardest part of a person's resistance to the gospel is to get them to admit that they're helpless and they are sinners and they have offended God. That they have no right at all to ask anything from God. But what they must do then is come to him confessing their crimes and plead for God's mercy. And most people are frankly unwilling to tackle that difficulty of their total abject helplessness. And much less do they want to see themselves as God sees them. But this is the way that faith is built. This is how faith grows. Faith includes the facts and faith includes belief of the facts and also the admission that God's word is accurate and not only true about God, but what God's word says about us is also true. Now notice then thirdly, the decision that confirmed her faith. On the exchange between Jesus and the woman when she addressed him correctly needs to be examined a little bit further. Jesus said, it is not proper to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Now the children refers to the Jews, the dogs refers to the Gentiles. And he's saying, you can't take the bread of life. You can't take the promises that God gave to his people and give that to the Gentiles. The Jews are the ones who are the children of promise. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, do the Jews have an advantage? And he answered that on his own question. He said, yes, they do, because unto them are committed the oracles of God. So Gentiles have no right to be first. They're a later addition. Paul explains that in Romans chapter 11. And then in the 18th verse of that chapter, he says, Gentile salvation is possible only because of what God has done for the Jews. Truth came through the Jews and not through 
the Gentiles. Now, the other part of that is the Gentiles, or rather the Jews, had rejected for century any light going to the Gentiles because they considered Gentile people to be outsiders. They thought that they were defiled, and they referred to them like a wild pack of dogs that ran through the streets and through the countryside, devouring all the garbage that the Jews threw out of their houses. And so Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. And at first, this seems to be the reference. But we investigate a little bit more closely, and we learn here that the word that Jesus used for dogs, going back to the original language, the word that he used for dogs is not the same as the usual one that they used to speak of Gentiles. Now here the word dog means a pet dog. It means a house dog. It means a dog that sits under the table and waits for a scrap to fall or to be pushed his way. But still a dog, still a dog. Now the Canaanite woman would have immediately picked up on that reference. She saw an opening and so she thought, well, there is hope after all. Luther says that the woman caught Jesus in his own words and he said that her reply was masterful and she said truth Lord yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table now most of us are familiar with that for 14 years we had a miniature dachshund and this dog lived under our table at dinner time and we were very used to that Uh, kids thought that the dog was one of the family You know, some people take their dogs and they dress them up in sweaters and put little booties on them, put ribbons in their hair. People do that for poodles all the time. That's because a poodle needs help. It really can't make it to the full grade of being a dog anyway. (laughs) So our kids just love the dog. But what we didn't do, we didn't sit a place at the table for the dog. We, We didn't put up a high chair or a booster seat at our table and say, well, that's the place for the dog. That's where he sits. No, we knew the place for the dog. The place for the dog is under the table. Now, this woman was humble enough to see hope in Jesus' reply. And her retort was acknowledgement of Jesus' assessment that she was a dog. And she was content to be a dog. And Her point is that nothing is taken away from the children or from the Jews because the dog sits under the table because the dog gets nothing but the crumbs. And so in like manner, the Jews were not going to miss a blessing because Jesus gave her something from off the table that just fell off of the table. And so she was content with whatever Jesus would give her because one word of favor from Jesus is worth all the wealth of the world. Now, do you see, do you start to get the picture of, about why Jesus called her faith great? Jesus had spent days upon days with self-righteous Jews, and he never got the understanding of position and authority and of grace and of faith that he got from this woman. And so to him, this is literally astounding. And it's not even his mission to go to the Gentile people. He was there. He crossed over the border to get some rest. And we see that when he crosses back over the border, when you get down to verse number 30, the crowds will be there. They'll meet him again. So he wasn't on a mission to the Gentiles. But folks, when he sees faith like this, he doesn't refuse it. She understood the heart of the matter of saving faith and what the Jews, something the Jews never showed. So her great faith was not in comparison to their book sense. 
Her great faith was not a comparison to these erudite teachers of the law who knew all these things that were contained in commandments and had been given to the Jews for centuries. It was not a comparison to that. She couldn't compare on that level. But her faith was great because here is a person that is supposed to know nothing at all. She's not supposed to know anything about this. And yet she knew so much about what Jesus was really after. And he was after a faith that does not only know the facts and a faith that does not only believe facts are true, but the faith that takes the next step, a full step into commitment to him as Lord and Savior specifically of her life. So you watch what happens. The response of Jesus, verse 28, Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Great is thy faith. And so he confirmed that she had the right kind of faith. What she had done was to pull out all of the stops. She overcame every hurdle. She was determined that she was going to get her blessing when it seemed impossible to get it. Like in the Old Testament when Jacob wrestled with the angel and he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And I think that that angel was a pre-manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As James Smith said, when you come to Jesus, difficulties have to be faced and surmounted in the coming. And that's what real saving faith does. It lays hold on Christ. It doesn't stop pursuing. It climbs the boulders. It jumps over the hurdles. Paul said that there is nothing worth holding on to more than Christ. Nothing is worth obtaining more than salvation in him. And if you want a perspective on that and why Jesus, or why we have this in this part of Matthew and why Jesus teaches in such a way, all you need to do is go back to the 13th chapter and there you have those parables of the man who finds the treasure in the field and he gives up everything that he has to get that treasure. And that treasure speaks about Christ and his kingdom. And you also have the parable of the merchant man who sold everything that he had in order to obtain the pearl of great price. And that pearl was Jesus Christ himself. And so here we find a woman that is willing to be ground into the dust in the deepest humility if that means that she gets what she wants from Jesus. Joseph Parker, a 19th century preacher in England, said eloquently, He replied instantly with the whole gospel in his tone, with all the love of his heart beaming, burning in his transfigured face. O woman, great is thy faith. He always recognized the operation of faith in human life. Nothing seemed to surprise the Son of God so much as the exercise of faith. We cannot define faith in any adequate terms. It's not a dictionary word. Faith is the sixth sense. Faith is the religious faculty. Faith is the power that takes all other senses and glorifies them. Faith is the step into the invisible which the soul takes in supreme moments of inspiration. We have lowered the word faith by trying to intellectualize it. It has come within the purpose of some men to attempt to explain faith. The explanation had better have been left alone for it does but spoil what it tempts to illumine. We know what faith is when the heart is in the right condition. With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. This is not a merely intellectual process and does not therefore come under the laws of merely intellectual inquiry or anatomy. Faith is the supreme act of the heart and is not to be explained until after it's been done. 
When a man has given himself wholly to the Son of God in some passion of sacrifice, the minister, it may be, or a friend, stands near him and says, Now that is faith. Jesus knew something about faith, and his response to the woman after all this is, That's what I'm talking about. Now that is faith. Now he said that to the centurion in Romans cha- or, uh, Matthew chapter 8. He said, I have never seen this kind of faith in Israel. Now he's outside the borders of the promised land and he finds surprising faith. Now finally then, we see the reward from Jesus. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Do you see the right faith in Jesus always gets the right answer? She was rewarded for her faith. So this poor daughter of hers had the demon cast out. But if you notice something about her faith, we don't find any place in the scripture where it says that she brought her daughter to Jesus. It doesn't say that, that she felt that Jesus had to touch her, speak to her, or do anything for her. You know why? Because he, she believed that he was God, and God transcends time and space. Now, even though he's in the flesh and Jesus can only be one place at one time, yet if he's God, he has power everywhere, doesn't he? And that's what she believed. Now, I ask you then, having the demon cast out, is that all that happened here? Is that all? No, it's not because this faith met all the requirements of saving faith. That's where we started, wasn't it? Number one, she knew the facts about the son of David. Number two, in her faith, she believed that those facts were true. That's the second part you have to get to. And number three is that she committed herself completely to his power and authority and put all of her confidence in him. What more is there to that? What more is there to saving faith than what she did? Now, I want to ask you, do you trust Jesus the way that this woman did? If you're saved, are you committed to him like this woman was? Are there troubles and trials in your life that you face that you haven't yet turned over to Jesus? Is there some lack in him? Is there something that Jesus can't supply? The story, story shows us that even if a crumb falls from his table that's more than you'll ever need and then next what about someone here who may not know Christ as Savior what about saving faith well I hope that all of you have committed your life to Christ and saving faith many people think that they're saved because they know the facts and many people think that they're saved because they acquiesce they say I believe the facts I know that Jesus died for sin. I know that Jesus was on the cross. I know that you have to believe in him in order to be saved. But they haven't taken the next step. And that is committing their life completely and wholly to him as Lord and Savior of their lives. This story teaches us to lay hold on Christ. Don't stop pursuing him. Don't let go of him. And I know that there are many obstacles in your way because if there weren't any, you would already be saved. And the thing you have to do is push away all of the obstacles, climb those boulders, jump over every hurdle that's put in your way by Satan and find your way to Jesus.
Scripture says he's waiting for you to come. He's waiting for you to understand and realize who he is. And when you come to him, you'll come with this feeling just like this woman had. Jesus, I am content with whatever crumb that you can give me. I am undeserving. I know I have no right to even talk to you. But you promised that if we will come to you believing in faith that you died to save us from our sins, then you will, in fact, save us. And when you come to Jesus, it won't be like you're just content with crumbs because you find out there's always a feast for you at his table. When you know Jesus, you always find the very best from him. He always has a feast for you. I just pray that you'll receive him today. Come to Jesus. Receive him as the Savior. Pursue him. Don't give up. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great story that we read in your word. Some people think that faith is such an easy thing, yet there is no great difficulty in understanding or believing what Jesus did on the cross. And yet we've seen in this story that there are all kinds of obstacles that have to be overcome. That Satan throws many things in our way. And we talk to people every day and we talk to people right here in our own church service that may not have committed themselves completely and wholly to Jesus Christ in saving faith. And that's because they have been unwilling to step over the hurdles. They're there. Satan puts them in our way. And now we need to know that by the grace of God, by the help of the Holy Spirit, all of those obstacles can be pushed out of the way and we can come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to some soul today, some lost person who has not yet understood about the mercy and the grace of God in sending a Savior into the world, or at least they've got far enough to get the intellectual facts straight in their mind. Now they need to go to the commitment. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to someone's heart in that way today. And then also for Christians that we would be praying for people to come to you. And our lives would not be like these disciples were at this time, pushing people away, but always bringing people into the presence of Jesus where they can be helped. Bless us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.